there's has been no recession in the United States. Like globally, we've seen growth pretty much stagnate, and Europe seems to be like in recessionary territory right now. China is kind of like really struggling, toppling over. But in the United States, yeah, we haven't seen the recession that everyone thought, and I and I kind of thought so too. I mean, the, one of the biggest things that surprised me was the Fed's ability to get interest rates up to these levels without causing something to break. Now you could argue that the banking crisis was that thing that broke, but they came out, you know, put a bandaid over it, and that bandaid's kind of holding right now. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. This week, we had the pleasure of spending time with Sam Callahan. Sam is the lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin and the host of Swan Signal. Sam's educational background lies in the hard sciences with degrees in physics and biology. During our conversation, we delve into a range of topics, including the culinary skills of Natalie Brunel, the importance of high-quality food at the firehouse, and the ongoing debate around the FinCEN rules and Warren Bill. We also talked about the current state of the economy and the missing recession. Additionally, we discussed the process of getting a job in Bitcoin. Hint, be very tenacious. Finally, we tried to understand how ETFs will purchase Bitcoin in their funds without significantly affecting the price. We shy away from making price predictions on this show, but it's getting very difficult to deny a bull case for Bitcoin over the next few years. Strap in. While you are buckling up, be sure that you are also nestling your Bitcoin into a self-custodied wallet protected by a cold card. This is the safest place for your Bitcoin. The cold card is a bespoke Bitcoin signing device. It has been designed and engineered from the ground up to be the ultimate in safety and security for your Bitcoin. If you're worried about getting hacked and your Bitcoin stolen, get a cold card. If you're worried about a $5 wrench attacks, cold card has solutions for that as well. We trust the cold card and we recommend it to our friends and family. Get 5% off a cold card Mark IV with code BCB or click the link in our show notes. Sam Callahan, welcome to the show, man. How are you today? I'm great. I am fantastic. How are you guys doing? We are doing well. Are you familiar with Keith McKay? He's a seed signer dev. He he lives in the Chicago area. We had him over the other night at the firehouse for some New York strip steaks. We had goat cheese crust on those things with a balsamic glaze over the top. Mm. And um, I think, you know what, Dan, I was kind of offended that he didn't comment more about how great the food was. I don't know if you yeah. picked up on that. But <laughs> yeah, I did. I felt I did. like he didn't appreciate it the way he should have appreciated it. So Keith, if you're listening, we'd appreciate a DM just saying the food was amazing. Stroke all, Josh off. When Josh cooks, he wants to get stroked off. I know Josh <laughs> well enough. <laughs> it's that simple. It was a delicious meal, and it was a pleasure having him in the firehouse. And Sam, we've talked to you. We're not going to get into too much specific here, but you grew up. You know the area we work in very well. Yes, and I do. the offer's there. If you, if you and Natalie are ever back in town, Hit us up. One of us is on shift. Uh, two you out of every three days. percent chance of getting one of the two of us. So come over for dinner. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love to. We'd love to. I mean, it sounds like Josh is quite the cook. So I'm going to have uh, to take you up on Dan that. Dan tries to stay, you know, he's 
he's bashful about it, but he's a great cook as well, especially Mexican food. He can kill a Mexican dish. Is that how this works? Do you guys cook for each other? Like at the, at the house? Like, is oh, yeah. that how it works? You, yeah, you, like have in- to, you have to learn to cook. I mean, when yep. you start, we've said this on here before, if you start, one of the first questions you get asked as you make the rounds and meet the 50 guys is, do you cook? And if the answer really? is no, it goes, all right, you better start fucking learning right. <laughs> because there's no excuse in the firehouse to not cook. Everybody sort of rotates is the best way to explain it. Some guys cook more, some guys cook less, but there's really no excuse, especially in our generation of firefighter. I think you'd agree, mm, Josh. For sure. Our generation is more cooking forward and we share the load. And so, there is no um, there is no better way to get shit talked about you behind your back than to pretend you can't cook or to be a bad cook because there's no fucking excuse. Like if you can follow simple directions and build like a five-year-old Lego set, you can cook. You just have to follow the directions. You don't have to be a chef here and make everything up from scratch. You just got to find a recipe online and send it. You know, it's not hard to do. And some people like to pretend it is. Feed the crew. Exactly. Feed the crew. You got game you in gotta the kitchen, throw Sam? Slop. Throw slop in those troughs. I'm working on it. You know, Natalie's got mad game in the kitchen and oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. She's not she, dude. Yeah. Give us a, a good example of something she can kill in the uh, oh, man, kitchen. She, she, so she's Polish. So she makes these, this like veal sauce, um, with, uh, dumplings and it's just like incredible. Like her mom comes into town and she makes it too. And it's, it's like mouthwatering. It's amazing. That's my favorite dish she has, but she's honestly like legit like she's an amazing amazing cook she she worked in italy for a while um at a restaurant learned learned how to cook there and that's legit um we're gonna have to flip the script then because you guys are coming to the firehouse and cooking for us and (laughs) natalie it better be fucking incredible by the way pressure is on we will talk shit if it's not yes we will 2024 She she puts me to shame that's for sure uh, wait, can you, I hate to do this cause I know it's the, ex- the last thing you want us to ask you, but can you give us just a quick, uh, rundown of this romance? What, is there <laughs> anything interesting? You don't have to give us the full story, but just something to kind of get the, the sparkles going here early on. <laughs> when did it, when did, when did it go from we're working together? We know each other to maybe there is something more here to, <laughs> A full-blown relationship, Samuel. <laughs> Tell us the love well, story. You know, I don't know. We had a lot in common. I mean, um, we we found out that well, we had worked together for a long time. Uh, just she she was a contractor um, at Swan, and I kind of helped on the research side of things at Hard Money. Uh, Hard Money was like a show that they did, really high quality, high production show, and everyone should check those out. Um, Fantastic. but I was doing research for them. And so like we'd interact and stuff and then, but we knew each other for months just through the industry. And we didn't know that we grew up like basically 300 feet from each other for a long time. Crazy. And, and then, um, and then we exchanged numbers and it was like, what's your, why is your area code? Like the same as <laughs> mine? And I was like, whoa, 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 you know, I grew up here and she's like, I grew up there. And then, and then she's like, what high school did you go to? And then I was like, I went to this high school. And she's like, I went to that high school. And then turns out that we grew up like same elementary school, like literally street over from each other. But we didn't know each other until Bitcoin. Um, so that kind of sparked things because obviously you have a ton in common. And right. um, we just kept talking. And then I, I went on her show. And then, you know, after the show, I kind of built up the courage. And I just I just straight up asked her out. And um, you just got to shoot your shot, you know. 
and then took her out and it was great. And one of those like date nights where you kind of close down the restaurant, just talking and it's rare to find somebody like her. She's so brilliant and she's a Bitcoiner. She's, she's super based in the best way. And like yeah. I said, great cook and there's everyone, uh, everyone loves her for a reason and, and she's just an amazing person. And so kind of went from there and it's been fantastic ever since. So unbelievably yeah. gifted communicator. Natalie oh Bernal, gosh, yeah. one of the most rhetorically gifted people I can think of, like off the charts in terms oh. of her ability in a variety of contexts, both interpersonally and rhetorically, one of the best out there. Her enunciation is incredible, but also like she makes it look easy. Like, I, I mean, I'm going to like um, just kind of talk a little bit, but like when she goes on these shows, I mean, she makes it look incredibly easy and mm. it's just like all her training and her talent. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard to like pack in information in a short. Exactly. That's where I was going. Like those one minute, you get like one minute, one minute, 30 seconds to impart an idea that could easily take and be explored for an hour. But to deliver it, you know, succinctly like that in such a short period of time is a real, a real skill. Yeah. And a lot of times she doesn't know the questions that they're going to ask her. Right. So it's not like she can like prep or anything. That's one thing I've wondered too, because that's even more incredible to be able to do that off the top of your head without, you know, ums and uhs and like pauses and breaks. Like I would, I would probably fall apart in like one minute trying to do something like that. It's a challenge. I think yeah. we, I think we can attest the compression of time when you're in these contexts is really intimidating. Interestingly enough, we've done, just done a little bit of speaking at these conferences and I, I generally do well in front of people. Uh, and the most nervous I've been communicating maybe in my life, Josh, was the analyst desk in Miami. If you had said, hey, you guys are going to be main stage for 45 minutes, I would have been like, you know, the heart rate would have been up and I would have been like, cool, that's that's kind of what we do. <clears throat> but it's the, I don't know what question's coming and I yeah. have 40 seconds to respond and then it's back to the stage. It was amazing to me how nervous I got in that environment because it's so sort of like out of our norm. And that's all she does. She's going on... These these outlets yeah. with no clue what's coming. A lot of the questions are often adversarial too. They're not they're not serving them up for spikes, right? They're trying to throw her off guard and have her hit a, a challenging volley. Uh, so I just think that's some of the most intimidating sure. communication yeah. context you can be in. Yeah, and what she what she does well is that she's always so positive, which is it's hard to do in the Bitcoin community specifically. It's something that I've learned from her is how to be like redirect like antagonistic questions in a more positive way and always be like pro Bitcoin instead of being anti fiat or anti CBDC. It's something that right, I right. like before I met her, I was very like, I was more angry. Like I was just like, kind of like hammering into all the CBDCs all the time. And then I kind of shifted my focus. Like why, why be anti something when you can just be like pro Bitcoin? And so I always learn things from her, honestly. And I'm just a big fan, her biggest fan. And, we're best friends. So, I mean, it's just, uh, she's just a incredible asset for Bitcoin. Heartwarming, heartwarming. Yeah. And that is such a powerful and important life theme of, of choosing optimism. Optimism doesn't just stumble upon you. You have to choose to have these types of attitudes. And in our line of work, it's just like everything else. We have an incredible job. We're very, very lucky and blessed to be career firefighter paramedics where we are. You are going to be there for, let's say, 30 years. You can choose to make yourself miserable or be really grateful and enjoy the hell out of it. And 
yes, there's times to take up arms and, and, and challenge. But for the most part, choosing to be glass half full in life is going to improve your time on this earth, both for you and all those around you tremendously. It's a great message for all of us. Yeah. yeah. If you ever have trouble doing that, one of the things that I, I really like to do, I listen to hardcore history quite a bit. Go back and listen to what people dealt with in trench warfare and World War One. If you think your jo- your life sucks or your job sucks, go listen to like the misery and like endless misery that these poor bastards dealt with getting rained on, trudging through mud and, you know, with rotting corpses around them for months at a time. Like, oh, yeah, then my life's not too bad at all. It's pretty great, actually. Like I have to get up at 2 a.m. and go pick up an old lady like, great. This is awesome. No problem at all. Yeah. Sam, let's hear about you, man. Let's uh, you've got an interesting background. You have biology and physics degrees. What's your what's your yeah. trajectory into Bitcoin? Um, my trajectory was, you know, I was a business major, but I switched to biology and physics because I was bored out of my mind learning Keynesian economics yes. in business school. And I just I didn't really know about Austrian economics or Bitcoin at all. Uh, it was around the global financial crisis to date myself a little bit. But I was just kind of disillusioned with the entire Wall Street and financial system and Keynesian economics, and I wasn't getting adequate answers to my questions in classes. And I thought physics made sense to me. Like, it's it's more like a science. Um, it always fascinated me. Biology fascinated me, the right. human body. And there's real answers me. in I those was, fields, you know? Like, you get an actual yeah. baseline answer where there's, like, real measurable things. Yeah. yeah. And I, and, and like the human body, I mean, you guys are paramedics. Like I used to think that was the most complex system and I was kind of attracted to learning about systems and the human body is extremely complex. I mean, it's amazing to me that all of throughout all of humanity, we have tried to understand our own bodies. I mean, we were incentivized to do that, to try to stay alive, <laughs> Yeah, but we still like, we still, there's so many miracles that happen every year in medicine that they can't explain. I mean, we still don't even know how our own brains work, really. I know. And, and so it's just, it always fascinated me. So I was always uh, passionate about anatomy. And, and so I went down that route. But I always loved investing. And I always loved uh, learning about financial history. I was just geeked out on it. I could always read books about financial manias and, and depressions and hyperinflations. I was always just kind of geeking out. And so I understood like central banking and then when I found Bitcoin, nobody had to orange pill me or anything. I, I, don't, I, didn't, I don't have like an orange pill story. It's just I read this article um, about Satoshi Nakamoto and then continued to read. And then I realized that this thing could actually kind of take power away from the central banks and fix the money. And that's when it just like blew my mind. And then like so many people, I just couldn't stop talking about it, read every single thing that I could on it. And realized that it was such a passion of mine that I had to like be a part of it. I had to work. It wasn't like enough for me to just to buy it and hold. Mm. Like I wanted to be part of the movement and I wanted to look back when I was older and say like you contributed in some way to helping bring about Bitcoin, this, this technology that I think could bring a lot of positive change to the world. And mm. so that's kind of how I decided to change careers. And Twitter was amazing for me. It's like proof of work, started to put out content, writing a little bit. And then I just DM'd some people and one of them was Corey Clipston. And Corey just answered, you know, he just said, I said, hey, I've been talking to financial advisors. 
independently just about Bitcoin and getting laughed out of rooms. I said, like, there's a lot of work to be done here. Like, I, I just want to be a part of it. And then Corey was like, hey, have you applied for this position? And I was in an interview like 20 minutes later after trying to break into the industry for like two years. And right. so you just got to keep trying, keep, you know, people want to get into Bitcoin. It's about proof of work and about perseverance and being, um, having the knowledge when that opportunity comes about, like, uh, they say like luck is when like work and opportunity meet or something like right. that. But that's, it's so true because one, by the time I got that interview, I mean, I knew, I, I knew everything about Bitcoin, like as, as much as I could, like nobody knows everything, but I was ready for that interview once I got it. And so, um, that's my story. And then when I started at Swan, we were a much smaller company. And it's just amazing to be a part of this, um, this company that's seen a lot of growth over the last couple of years and to Tons. work in a lot of different roles and now, now I'm the lead analyst and do a lot of just research, writing, and then I host the Swan Signal podcast. But it's been it's been a journey, and it's been uh, very just grateful to be a part of it. It is not a coincidence that so many people come from a background of hard science and are interested in Bitcoin. I mean, the the amount of engineers, Preston Pish, Lynn Alden, that are in Bitcoin because they just love the the hard data and what the sensical logic at the base of everything, biology. One of the books that was most influential on me, and I think a lot of this is prior to Bitcoin for me, but many investors are very interested in biology because it's it's a closed system of market forces that are going on. Like the mitochondria need energy. There's a, there's a system that is completely derived by market forces and it has to it has to work. And there's no, you know, there's no free lunch in biology, there's no free lunch in physics, and none in economics. And the idea that Keynesianism brings of free lunches being handed out are so anathem anathema, I think that's the word, uh, to a biology and engineering. So um, what I was yeah, getting at too is the, right? it's nature. Uh, the Selfish Gene was a book that I think probably made this work the best for me, understanding Great. how all these biological systems work and intermingle together and how... I mean, he didn't talk about economics in that book, but you can easily draw parallels between these two things and it makes a ton of sense. So for me, when I saw that you had those degrees, I was like, yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. it's also a reflection of, this is a shout out to education and liberal arts education and being multidisciplinary is if we branched out of the formal education realm of first principle thinking doesn't just come about. You have to put in work. You have to read a lot of books. You have to produce a lot of material. You have to conscientiously carve out time in your life to mull over and and sculpt ideas. And my, I, I was a double major in college in rhetorical communication and biblical and theological studies. But uh -huh. my interest in finance and economics that blossomed after that and then, and then Bitcoin, I draw on tons of stuff all the way back there in terms of not what I think, but the way that I think and distill information. And on Blue Collar Bitcoin, we're constantly harping on, if your entire list of podcasts is Bitcoin podcasts, you're fucking up. Expand your horizons, read other books, expose yourself to other people, even those that completely disagree with Bitcoin, maybe especially those people. Become a well-rounded thinker. Because even if you're on the right track, if you're only hearing voices from inside the same echo chamber, you're going to sound redundant. Your your thinking's going to become lazy. Push yourself intellectually is my message. I love I love that. It's like curiosity too. Curiosity is a superpower, but then having the yes motivation to follow that curiosity. But yeah, you dude, you're so right because 
I have to write. I, I write things, um, you know, once a month I do an in-depth research report and then every two weeks I write something. Like I, I, I like the Bitcoin podcast. Like I have my cues up and I listen to them sometimes, but a lot of the times I'm not listening to Bitcoin podcasts because man. I'm trying to gather new ideas and I'm trying to like put new ideas through an orange lens and exactly. apply it to Bitcoin. And I'm not going to find that by just listening to other Bitcoiners that I agree with. A lot of times I listen to podcasts where I don't agree with the person and then I kind of pick apart their argument or find something that I like that they said and then delve deep into it, like do a little bit of research. Like, is that actually true what he said? And then and then turn it around and maybe put a Bitcoin frame framing on it. But that is so correct because like I said, I, I, I find myself listening to Bitcoin podcasts less and less because it doesn't help my Same job here. in terms of coming up with new ideas. Right. Us too, man. And here's my final comment on on this topic is when you feel triggered on Twitter or reading a book or listening to a podcast, stop for a second and spend some more think some more time thinking about what just triggered you. Let me give you an example from last week. I retweeted some some of your stuff from your recent article breaking down the state of the economy, the the Bloomberg article you mentioned about um, basically rising, all yeah. these different you know, things that have gotten way more expensive. And Joe Carlosare, who we spend a lot of time around and paying attention to, although he sometimes irks us, we continue to pay more and more attention to him because he pops in right below with charts of median net worth in the United States during that same time frame. And it's gone up the same percentage. Now we can get into, and we may in this discussion, get into the tale of two economies and the implications for those that don't hold assets and don't have cheap debt. Nonetheless, the the, the data he provided, I was like, whoa, that's, yeah, uh, I didn't expect think, that. And then, I, and then I went and did my own research, went on St. Louis Fed, pulled the data. I'm like, Joe's right. you know. And so the, the point there is just when somebody irks you, it's maybe because you need to dig one layer deeper, do a little more research and realize they have a point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Joe's great at that too. I mean, I saw that as well and it's something to definitely consider. I mean, sure. I, I think that could I be interesting. We, I think on it already, like the tail of two economies and asset prices and all that. I think that's kind of <laughs> contributing to that data point, but you have to like consider that and why is that the case? Right. And what are the ramifications of that? And that's, that's also why I love Joe too. I mean, he always challenges narratives. He which challenges narratives like crazy. He always comes in with a big swing and dick to slap on your face when you think that you had something, you know, yeah, something catchy it. to go. And like Joe comes in what. and just He's cuts like, you down at the I knees. Be, how can I be contrary? <laughs> I'll right tell you now. what, Josh, you end up sucking that thing more than you'd like, but that's the reality, yeah. you know? Well, you know, he, he kind of forces it on you, you know? He's not gentle about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to pivot to first main meaty topic here. Where the fuck is this recession, Callahan? Why'd you choose Walk? the word meaty, by the way? I just, yeah, I don't know. Just came off That's the top of your mind. head. <laughs> yeah. Callahan, where's this recession? Everyone's been calling for it. It's not happening. In fact, it's definitely not happening. QQQ's up 40% this year. S&P's up 20, approaching all-time highs. Things are feel like they're kind of flipping bullish across the board in some senses. I know there's data points that would contradict that, but... What's your maybe TLDR on why things are the way they are and, and in a surprising sense for those that have expected pain? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying 
there has been no recession in the United States. Like globally, we've seen glo- growth pretty much stagnate. Um, and your, Europe seems to be like in recessionary ter- territory right now. China is kind of like really struggling, toppling over. Um, but in the United States, yeah, we haven't seen the recession that everyone thought. And I, and I kind of thought so too. I mean, the, one of the biggest things that surprised me was the Fed's ability to get interest rates up to these levels without causing something to break. Now, you could argue that the banking crisis was that thing that broke, but they came out, you know, put a Band-Aid over it, and that Band-Aid's kind of holding right now. Um, But I think what I didn't consider and what many people didn't consider was just how much uh, corporations and households took advantage of the low rates for so long that Mm. they kind of extended their debt out, and that there is just these long lags to monetary policy, and they were probably longer than people expected. Um, And so... I do think eventually, if, if rates stay higher for, for longer, that we will, it kind of will run into a wall. And right. that's kind of, I don't know when that is, because like I said, I mean, if you look at even the debt of the S&P 500, I think half of the debt matures in 2030. And so you really don't see this like maturity wall where, where they'll have to refinance at higher interest rates. You really don't see that coming to head till like 2025, 2026, according to a recent biz report. So there's basically, they just have runway. They just have runway. And all these like uh, households refinance their mortgages and they have low fixed rates and they're not moving, you know, which keeps asset prices up in terms of housing, um, which is obviously a critical part of the economy as well. And so you just have these dynamics at play where the economy itself hasn't really felt those interest rate hikes immediately, like maybe some people thought to bring on that that recession. Um, And so you haven't seen the unemployment rate come up. Now, the unemployment rate is like an interesting metric. You always have to talk, think about like the methodology of these, these metrics that get repeated mm. over and over again. And they're just like two surveys. Uh, but as you know, once you dig into the data more and there's more nuance to it, but a lot of these jobs are like part-time jobs or like second jobs. Um, you say this is a tight labor market where you have like baby boomers basically like sticking around and not retiring. Um because I think they feel like they can't. And I think that's part of the reason why these inflationary policies, you know, that has trickle on effects where baby boomers are staying in these high paying positions for longer. And then that affects Gen X, Gen Xers who are supposed to get that big promotion to yep. those high paying jobs, right. but they just won't freaking retire. And then millennials, it kind of trickles back down. Um, so the labor market's tight, but there's just like a lot of nuances to it. But you haven't seen the unemployment rate spike. And I do think that eventually you will see more rises in corporate bankruptcies. You're already kind of seeing it in like small businesses on the margin. And that's kind of a result of these large corporations have better access to capital. They can access the debt markets more easily than these smaller businesses. And so they're having more problems right now on the margin than these bigger companies. And maybe as time goes on, if, if the Fed doesn't you know, change its interest rate policies, you'll start to see that kind of uh, compound more and more. And so you might see more corporate bankruptcies and you might see kind of a rise in the unemployment rate eventually as that occurs. And I, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners have like a similar uh, thesis where at that point, the Fed will do what the Fed does and they'll come in and intervene and stimulate the economy or at least try to with uh, their accommodative policies because it's just like all they know how to do at this point. And right. I think the banking crisis is kind of what you saw, where you, there was arguments about whether it was QE, whether it was not. The Fed's balance sheet expanded, but it's supposed to be only temporary. 
But I think the bigger picture was that it just showed that they have this knee-jerk reaction to come in and intervene whenever something goes wrong, like to intervene in the free markets. And that was just a huge sign to a lot of investors that, okay, even if something happens, the Fed's going to come in again. It's game Um, on. Yeah. It's game on. And in in that scenario, Bitcoin rips and asset Mm. prices rip in general. And I think Bitcoin's the fastest horse in the race once again. And maybe the market's already like, looking through a recession and they, they just expect that to happen. And right. if the Fed doesn't do that, then we're in for a world of hurt. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but that's just, always, you know, that's yeah. one of those things you're always thinking like, okay, if this happens, you're always thinking like maybe one, two, three steps ahead, but then you have to wonder to yourself, the other market participants, they're also probably doing the same thing. So you could talk yourself into the thought that a recession is going to happen out of it, back into it, out of it. And, Eventually, if you're trying to make these directional bets and not just acquiring assets that you know are going to be valuable in the future, you're going to get caught off sides at some point and get 100%. hurt by it. And we're we're in this fairly small echo chamber, like Twitter, you know, twin fit, uh, tw- you know, financial Twitter, where a lot of people are making these kinds of calls. And everybody, it seems the consensus was generally there's going to be a recession. And mm. whenever there is a consensus like that, it's almost like counter intuitive where the thing everyone expects is kind of the thing that doesn't generally happen. But again, Mm -hmm. you can go back to talking yourself out of it, back into it. It's just kind of counterproductive to try to make these calls with large amounts of money. At least in my experience, you end up getting caught off sides at some point and getting hurt. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about on this topic was you had a recent episode of Swan Signal where Jeff Ross was talking about a potential. He thinks that at this point, the soft landing might actually be in play. Um, do you agree with that? What are your thoughts around the potential of a soft landing actually coming to pass here? And then, the, you know, then we're back to like, oh, if everyone yeah. thinks the soft landing's back in play, well, guess what, motherfuckers? It's going to get rough. Yeah, my, um, and I, there's like a soft landing. Well, well, it's easy to have a soft landing if the government keeps spending like drunken sailors. Exactly. And it's more yes. of like an emerging market landing. And and Lynn Alden's talked about this as well as a, a Twitter account called Paulo Macro has talked about this for a number of years now, I think, of how America is kind of turning into an emerging market economy. And what that means is like excessive deficit spending, rising bond yields, uh, currency debasement, elevated inflation, more political, um, like politically driven policymaking and then like a weakening rule of law you have like hot nominal growth which is what we've seen but like low real growth and that's the economy that we're coming into and in that scenario you will see like a quote-unquote soft landing uh but you know it just it threatens our long-term sustainability and then when you you say emerging market i'm sorry to interrupt you but like that just brings to mind banana republic type things and then you look around the world today and you see a senile old man running our country and we've got a have you got did you guys see the Trump trading card blitz where he's trying to sell a, I don't know his supporters NFTs. trading cards and NFTs like and then you watch this like 2 minute video of him selling it and you're like holy shit this is a person who could potentially be the president of the United States selling trading card NFTs to a bunch of morons and this is not banana republic stuff I don't know what is like if you brought a chainsaw on stage, I'd be more impressed. <laughs> I really yeah. would. I think that would be more fun. But it is like, who the f- who is doing? Who is like engaged in either one of these candidates is really mind blowing to me. Like, 
this is like an IQ test on a national scale. That is, we are failing, failing for yeah. sure. And, and wait on, on the, on the Trump side of things, uh, I was listening to Preston American Hoddle and Carla Sare this last week and Hoddle and, and Joe have been saying for a little while that if Trump gets back in there, which man, it looks an awful lot like he may, uh, we need to go back to some of his stances the last time he was in office and what that could mean for markets right now with debt loads where they're at. Like he, he was basically saying we need negative rates. We need a ton of QE. He's got a political appetite to try to rev this engine back up in an environment where that could get really uncomfortable from an inflationary perspective. But you could see assets absolutely ripping if somebody is allergic to pain economically and sits in that seat and wheels a really wields a really, really large club. Um, oh, yeah. Do you remember Trump like when during the presidency? I mean, he kind of broke the mold a little bit and was just actively calling out Jerome Powell. Yep. You remember <laughs> Crazy, that. dude. Scary. He was Scary. talking about negative interest rates. He was advocating he was like, he's for gotta those. cut rates. He's got you know, which is usually there's a separation there, you know. There's like a Fed independence that's respected. Yeah, uh, that they but pretend they have Trump yeah. was just like, nah, <laughs> cut rates. Yeah. You're an idiot. <laughs> I, I agree though, Callahan. Like I reading Lynn. Honestly, I've had with the whole fiscal dominance narrative, I've had a bit of skepticism about how impactful that really is going to be. But as time wears on and I think about it more, like there is, there's liquidity built into this system kind of no matter which way you turn. And when, when, you know, when you're at governments, you know, your deficits are growing at this clip, just generationally mind blowing clip it's it's really hard to trigger a recession when this much money needs to be spent automatically just to make good on entitlements and then you add in the layer of they're not willing to allow for pain i mean btfp and the rescue we saw in the last banking crisis is stone cold evidence of the fact that they are not interested in having a banking crisis there are a lot yeah. of reasons why metrics are unreliable like when you had uh when you were talking to to dr jeff ross he he was basically hinting at the fact that economic data is less and less reliable as government involvement in the economy grows and grows and we see more sticks and bubblegum placed on the system i mean so i just caution people a lot of maybe the data you've been attached to is less reliable and the harm that's going to be caused you is going to be more insidious and harder to recognize. I mean, this is, if we're to to take this back to basics, debasement and inflation is a lot easier to get away with than some of the alternatives. And unfortunately, most of society is probably not really going to recognize it appropriately or recognize it in time. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. I would rate the uh, quality of our economic data as like an F, like it's just a joke. And then what the politicians do, or even the central bankers, is they just cherry pick data, like whichever is the right, right. data point to, to point to back their narrative at the time. Like whether it's, you know, for a while it was like non-farm payrolls. That was like the thing because it showed what they wanted to show. And that's what they kind of put in the microphone. And that was the messaging. Oh, look at the payrolls, look at the payrolls. And then it just switches. Oh, look at nominal GDP now. Well, the nominal GDP, I mean, there was a great chart that looked at nominal GDP and nominal public debt and how 
they just kind of shoot up together. And then the public spending, it contributed like, I think 25% to the, to the high GDP number. Um, you look at things like wage growth and, and hiring as well. You look at the government sector versus the private sector. That's another way they've kind of boosted the economy is the government sector is hiring like crazy and seeing mm. a significant wage growth while the private sector is just going down. So, um, you know, you always have to think about how they're kind of driving these, these numbers as well as how, why they're saying, Hey, this is the metric we're talking about right now. <laughs> and look here, look here, but don't look over here. Um, <laughs> yes. that's kind of, that's, that's the game. Where is the, where do you draw most of your data from when you're doing this kind of analysis? Do you, I know, I mean, the New York fed is, or the St. Louis fed is a good spot, but how much do you trust that those numbers are, I mean, there, there's so much political motivation to kind of cook the books in a certain way. A good example would be CPI. The, the way that they measure CPI has changed over the last 50 years, multiple times. Um, and it's it's obviously changed in a way that they can make it look lower. You know, there's replacements of certain as, of certain goods of like, uh, like computers are a good example. They get faster, which they actually have the, hur- the heuristics adjust to look like you're getting more value, which you are in that sector. But there's other examples where Oh, steak is more expensive. So now we're going to measure hamburger instead of steak, which is obviously cheaper. Um, How much do you trust the numbers that are getting spit out by the, say, the St. Louis Fed? I don't. I don't trust them at all. You're right. They they do substitutes and they always do substitutes that understate the CPI. I mean, it's right. You know, and so I guess what I'm asking is where do you get solid data or where where do you think you can? Yeah. I mean, I look at all of these resources. So I look at like the BLS, uh, the different fed, you know, New York fed, St. Louis fed. I look at all that. Um, I look at the bank of international settlements puts out a lot of research, but I always take it all with a grain of salt. And for like, for instance, like the BLS, I focus on like the revisions that happen because there's always revisions and not enough people go back and look at how they change the data afterwards. So they, like, for instance, you know, they, they look at the payrolls that I mentioned in the spring and it was like, oh, look at all this growth. But when they went back, they revised it and it was actually like negative during that time period where they were like talking about how there was all this explosive growth, but not <laughs> enough people kind of think about the revisions. Um, and so I just... Wait, what do you think even, is going on with those revisions? Do you think that that was an um, honest mistake or is it that we want to make this look better than it is and then we'll go back and revise it to be... More well, it's just later. like how it's calculated. When it's initially calculated, they make all these assumptions with their models because they don't have the data. The data is like lagging. Right. So okay. they make assumptions based on like last year of how, and they estimate how many jobs based on like how many new businesses opened and closed that month last year. And then they estimate how much it would be and they kind of just do these models that are inaccurate. <laughs> and then they go back, once they actually have the data, they go back and revise it. Um, and so it's just part of the process, but not enough people kind of pay attention to that. But then in like, in terms of CPI, like I have a ton of problems with the CPI, CPI as, as does everyone else. But the fact of the matter is, is that it moves markets. And so it has, you have to like consider it because right. it's what everyone talks about. It's what the entire market seems to focus on, even though everyone knows it's a silly metric. Um, so I have to know what's going on with these, these metrics, even though I don't really necessarily believe that they're accurate or they're they're valid. They're not even like measuring what they're supposed to be measuring. Like I, like the CPI went down 3.1%. Personally, my inflation rate is much higher than 3.1%. I don't know about you guys, but um, you know, everyone's inflation rate is individual. 
to their own expenditures and their lives. Uh, but we have this stupid metric that tries to like put an umbrella over everything. I mean, it doesn't make any sense from like a logical standpoint, but it moves markets. So I have to pay attention to it. Yeah, I have a, I have a couple quick comments. One is to kind of close the recession conversation. I really liked what John Har said on with you recently was that maybe there's a chance this is the slowest walk into a recession in history because of some mm-hmm. of the reasons you just hinted at with corporations issuing record levels of debt at record low coupon and maturities not coming up for a long period of time. And if we take that down to the personal level, tons of folks being locked into fairly cheap fixed rate, long duration mortgages and not feeling the pain. And the segue here is kind of into the, the, we we mentioned this earlier in the episode, but the tale of two economies. Like when we think about inflationary impacts, if we're dead honest, Josh, for guys like you and I, we are feeling the impacts at the grocery store and maybe when we buy a car. But Josh and I both bought homes a while ago at insanely low rates. And so from like a headliner expensive with the mortgage hitting every month. We're not feeling the same pain that say a brand new 24 year old firefighter who's looking for his first home is feeling. I mean, I, my, that, that's where my heart really starts to break and, and elevate is thinking about how much more expensive it is based on our salary, knowing what it was like when, when I bought a home and then seeing the predicament that the guys and gals are, are coming in now. I mean, the appreciation on my house is just, all, and I bought in 2018. It's absolutely crazy. And then if you take that down to the monthly payment, adding in rates, it's it's jaw-dropping. And so I think this gets to a point, I don't know if either one of you want to chime in, but sort of what we mean here by the tale of two economies, that the if you have cheap debt and you own assets right now, you're somewhat insulated and protected. And if you don't, it's it's a really really painful alarming time. Any thoughts on that front from either of you? Yeah, I mean people in our position, Dan like Dan you've got a car you're not going to sell. I've got a car I'm not going to sell because I don't want to go buy a new car at 8% or whatever the rate is at the moment. I don't want to go buy a new house right now so you're you're kind of the whole the whole thing is kind of locked up at the moment. Mm. Most the people that have to purchase something are going to do it because they out of necessity. But all of the the spending that people want to do just because they want a shiny new car or they want a fancy new house like that is in my view very very muted at this time and until rates start coming back down where people view it as a little bit more um normal i i mean, we've been so we've been in such a weird environment for the last 20 years as well yeah. like our whole entire adult lives the three of us we've been in a, a we've been in this fishbowl of extremely low interest rates for so long that normal interest rates which is what I would argue we're kind of in right now is kind of a normalized rate yeah. for the past hundred years. What a typical rate is, is what we're in. And it seems like nosebleed us because we're just so used to getting almost free money. And when you factor in CPI, we literally are getting free money. We're getting paid to have loans. If my house loan rate is 2.75% right now, I'm literally getting paid to hold this loan over the next 25 years or whatever's left on it. So yeah, yeah there, uh, until these rates... <laughs> come back down to somewhere where we view them as more normal. And I think this is just going to lock up the, especially the residential real estate and probably commercial real estate as well. Yeah, it's well said. I want to hear your thoughts on what's going on with Elizabeth Warren. 
Sam. Um, I don't know how (laughs) we don't have to stay on this for very long. Somebody needs to get in her pants and loosen her up. Yeah. Yep. Uh, This digital asset money laundering act. I'm hearing whispers that this may have more teeth than things in the past. Her and Jamie Dimon are teaming up. uh, And there is it looks to be a serious attempt to take a swing at at some concerning things. I think self-custody is somewhat Mm -hmm. in the crosshairs. and they're they're coming at Bitcoin, at least an attempt to try and censor, contain, and surveil it. What, what do you know, if anything, about this potential bill? And and you have any any fresh or hot takes on it? I don't know if it's fresh. I I just think it's like extremely overreaching, and it's just an expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act to try to surveil Americans and and infringe on our human rights of privacy. And that's like the bigger issue here. Basically, will make permissionless blockchains like Bitcoin, you know, unavailable to Americans and force validators and developers and of these networks to basically gate and surveil. And so it makes them almost unusable. And then it's not even like, can't even comply with it. Like it's really an attack on unhosted wallets. And then every single node that's supposed to relay, you know, blockchain information has to KYC like a financial institution. It makes no sense. And it's extremely overreaching. Um, Hard to comply with, really hard to enforce. But if a law like this is passed, I mean, it, it basically Bitcoiners would be breaking the law if they run a node. I mean, it's, it's like if they don't pay to become like a money transmitter, like having a license, which costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you have to kind of up that, uh, keep that up every year, pay more fees just to run a node. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And so it's really about infringing on on privacy and under the name of stopping illicit finance, but we know that AML KYC does nothing to stop illicit finance. I mean, right. it just literally surveils. It stopped like 0.01% of financial crimes since they've been implemented. They've, they're right. completely ineffective. They just erode people's, uh, you know, like sovereign rights mm-hmm. as well yeah. as they just add a bunch of compliance to banks. Like <laughs> so put my conspiracy. Really I think they've been very effective. If I put my conspiracy theory hat on and say that they're basically just there to surveil, they're not really there to stop any kind of illicit activity because right. they all know that isn't going to really happen. The surveillance is the important part. And I do wonder yeah. how much yeah. of this bill is like simple misunderstanding of how all this works, or how how much of it is malicious intent to know that like yeah, if we make these rules where they need to be money transmitters. And this will just effectively shut down anyone who anyone who follows the laws of the U.S. will just have to shut their node down. And I tend to believe that option number two is most likely to be the case because I don't think anyone, at, at least at this time, after Bitcoin's been around for 14 years, there's at least some, you know, some people around them close enough to know that this is just going to shut down nodes. That's all it's intended to do. Yeah, yeah it's just an attack on like peer-to-peer transacting period i mean elizabeth Warren must must hate cash i mean <laughs> there's no way around it i mean it's the same you know they can't surveil that and a lot of crime happens in cash and i just think that, that the bigger issue of privacy like people need to understand that privacy facilitates freedom of speech because Amen. being able in a democracy to have conversations that are private that maybe are against you know the norms of society if people think that they're being watched and surveil, maybe those conversations don't take place and yeah. there's no conversations there's that are like politically contentious. 
And so when that's compromised, it like undermines like a structural pillar of democracy. And so privacy needs to be um, insured to have a viable democracy. Um, if you just always think big brother's watching over you, it changes how people behave. Hmm. And, and so it's so important. And, and this is what they're trying to do. They're, this is just a crazy bill that it, should, it shouldn't upset just Bitcoiners. It should upset anybody who, who wants privacy in, in America and who doesn't want uh, you know, this surveillance state to kind of come in. I mean, already you could argue that we're already surveilled almost nearly completely except cash and except you know, Bitcoin pseudonymous. But you know, Bitcoin's like another pillar where you can finally you know, transact peer-to-peer without Big Brother like knowing everything about you. And so right. it needs to be protected and people need to be upset about this. And I hope that the arguments, you know, the, the outrage goes beyond the Bitcoin community with this bill. But we'll see. We'll see. I'm not, not too optimistic that that's going to happen. But at least Bitcoiners are fighting against it. For sure. I mean, th- there's so much unfortunate irony here. Basically, what she's saying is that big banks and institutional players can have access to the underlying, but you can't. Right. And and I think it's popular in hardcore Bitcoin circles to say, ah, oh, fuck them. Like this is this game theory is going to roll downhill and Bitcoin's going to win no matter what. Maybe on a long enough time frame, but we're all meat puppets with families and goals in the next 10, 20 years. And I think there could be significant consequences and delays if something like this does stick to the wall. I mean, if you go out into normie land and you start thinking about the next wave of Bitcoin adoption, if you start inciting fear and uneasiness about taking self-custody of this thing, and we move into an ETF environment, you could end up in a scenario where a lot, a substantially less amount of Bitcoin is in self-custody. And it's plain and simple. When there's less Bitcoin in self-custody, there's more surface area to be attacked in general and for this thing to be captured. And so... I, it's hard to know how much to play the political game because it is nauseating. I am not animated by and excited by the, the political angles. But the other part of me says, hey, Daniel, this stuff is somewhat important. And if the wrong narratives take hold and the wrong bills get through, it could have substantial medium term consequences on people that want to be law abiding citizens. So I think my message to the audience is, at least pay some attention to this stuff. Um, don't just completely ignore it and, and think it's it's totally unimportant. I wonder how coincidental the ETF coming online and this bill being passed kind of in tandem here is. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it almost seems kind of related. I mean, but it, it could be totally wrong about that. Have no insight to anything going on in the background at all. But it is interesting that both of those things are kind of coming to fruition roundabout simultaneously. Yeah. I'm curious, Sam. I'll go ahead if you have something on that. Well, no, I just think, uh, you know, Dan's right. I mean, it basically pushes people into custodied solutions that are, you know, regulated in AML KYC. And that's kind of what the outcome would be. But it's, I think it's unconstitutional. It violates the fourth and the first amendment. Um, And I think, I, I guess I'm just like not optimistic of this government getting to pass anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's like a benefit. It's so dysfunctional that I don't even know if they'll get anything passed. 
But, you know, you have to kind of raise your alarm. You have to like, you know, write to your senators and, and let your voice be heard. Um, but I'm not really optimistic that it'll get passed. Um, I know people are worried about it, but I guess I just don't have any faith in, in our government doing that. But also, it is the game theory where you see like Hong Kong doing the opposite, right? They're like kind of like doing very favorable regulation. So there is this game theory where like America could shoot itself in the foot, but other countries mm-hmm. are going to have different, you know, laws in place that might be more beneficial for for Bitcoiners and and they'll benefit from this technology. And so I hope that doesn't happen as an American. Like I think the the ideals of Bitcoin in America are very aligned. Yeah. Um, you know, people call Bitcoin freedom money. And it, I think it should be here. You know, we have been a leader in technology uh, for the last, you know, for the last like 50 plus years. I mean, that's that's one of the great things about America is we've led this like technological revolution. And I think we should do that with Bitcoin as well. But um, if our government is so stupid <laughs> that it's going to shoot itself in the foot, then other other countries are going to benefit that take a different mm-hmm. approach. There's a Henry Kissinger quote that comes to mind on this topic. He said, quote, the illegal we do immediately. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. Mm. That's a quote from Henry Kissinger. You know, that's just like the um, the mindset of some of these bureaucrats that are operating behind the scenes here. And I don't doubt that some of them take that exact position. Yeah, the, the last I have a quote for you, too. This is from Timothy May, cypherpunk. And he said, technology and concrete solutions over bickering and chatter. And so they can try to make these laws and chatter. But if you come up with technological solutions that they can't stop, um, that's much, much more powerful. And that's always been like a cypherpunk ideal. Mm. And so it's up to Bitcoiners, I think, to build and, and just keep their heads down and, and innovate on Bitcoin um, yep. And expect expect these attacks to happen. I think as Bitcoiners, we have to just expect every potential attack you, vector to, to transpire. I think just about every Bitcoiner has seen this quote. It's a, I think it was in the 80s when F.A. Hayek said something along the lines of, the only way we're going to you know, stop this government money printer is to introduce something in a sly roundabout way that they cannot stop. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I mean, that is as cyberpunk as it gets while being an 85-year-old economist in the mid-80s. Yeah. Here's a Lynn Alden quote from Broken Money. One of the headlining quotes that's just fantastic on the similar topic. Politics can often affect things temporarily and locally, but technology is what drives things forward permanently and globally. Fuck with Bitcoin? Find out. Hopefully. But we need to stay vigilant. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, just for people listening, <clears throat> this bill's got a comment period, I think, until the mid-January. Is that accurate? I, gotta I think so. I think that's yeah, I'll yeah, look I it up. And right. I know Pish has written an article um, that is a good way to kind of frame your argument and then submit your opinion on it uh, before this oh, thing. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Pre- so we, Preston, like, he put on his lawyer hat for that one. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. He's so, yeah, we'd encourage the- you. We'll link that in the show notes here, too. If you guys, anyone listening, you want to check that out, you want to... We would encourage all of you to submit uh, your opinion on on this thing because it does it may move the needle. No guarantees, but the more people that do it, the more likely the needle gets moved a bit. For shizzle, let's talk nation state adoption. Uh, we before we click record, we were riffing a little bit on Central America, Middle East. Mm-hmm. I know you just 
uh, have been kind of mulling some of some of this over in your analysis. Walk us yeah. through some of your thoughts. Well, so there's a lot of excitement about Javier Malay becoming president of Argentina as a libertarian and Austrian economist um, supporter, at least, and as well as you know he's publicly speaking spoken positively about Bitcoin. And I think there's been a lot of gaslighting from the Bitcoin community that they expect like Bitcoin adoption to flourish there or him to make legal tender or come out and push for Bitcoin's adoption. And I just think that's like a pipe dream at this point. Um, because Argentina is basically beholden to the IMF. I mean, they are the largest debtor to the IMF by far. They owe $44 billion. And the IMF hates Bitcoin. So, and they are wearing them like a goddamn sock puppet. As you just, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're basically dependent on the IMF right now for, for disbursements of funds. And so even right now, I mean, when Malay won, one of the first things he did was jump on a plane to Washington to meet with the IMF. <laughs> and basically, he explains to the IMF what his plans are. And if they give him the go-ahead, then he can go ahead. And he promised dollarization, ending the central bank. Um, and people think like Bitcoin, but... Ultimately, the IMF has to be, uh, you know, in the same boat with him and say like that's a good idea. And last time, whenever the IMF kind of is holding withholding funds when a country is going through a crisis, they basically can negotiate at the barrel of a gun and get whatever they want. And so this is what happened uh, just recently. The I, the Argentina got a bailout, and part of the provision was to stop banks from allowing crypto services in Argentina. That's what the IMF wanted them to do for financial stability reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that made news. And, um, I just don't think, I think Malay has to do concessions cause he's in, in, inheriting such a mess of an economy. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a mess, triple digit inflation, debt up to their ears, slowing growth. They, they basically drain down all their reserves to try to prop up their currency. So they're like, they have no dollars, they have all this debt and and he's going to have to make concessions and prioritize certain things. And you saw that even recently with like the climate change accord. Um, so he joined some the climate change accord or whatever after talking in the campaign, like he's totally against this. It's such a hoax. He's making concessions certain places so that he can do other more important plans and get support from the powers that be. So there's probably like a trade-off there. Right. And he, he said, okay, I'm going to, do this even though i don't agree with it because i need support elsewhere that's more important to prevent hyperinflation and prevent uh, you know a, a default on our sovereign debt which would be the 10th default in their country's nation uh or history so uh, what's another one yeah what's um, another one yeah have you you guys are probably familiar with this line of thought if if you owe the bank a little bit of money you have a problem but if you owe the bank a lot of money the bank has a problem Yes. So what, are, what happens or what's the fallout just off the top of your head? You don't have to, I mean, I know you maybe didn't research this deeply, but this is just my thoughts. Like what happens if Mille just says, Hey, IMF, go fuck yourselves. We're not paying shit. And they just do their own thing. <laughs> like what are the consequences of that for him? And why isn't that something that he wouldn't want to do? I mean, they'd be, they'd go into a severe depression. They've become like so reliant on the IMF for money. I mean, it's just like a highly indebted person who needs like more monthly payments uh, to keep going. That's kind of where they're at right now. So it'd be pretty catastrophic. So one of the things I looked at was I just looked at the history of Argentina and 
Argentina had a terrible economic crisis in 2000, 2001. And one of the things that sparked that was the IMF withheld disbursement of funds. Mm. And then they just led into a huge crisis, political, economic, and banking crisis. And it's a really interesting story. And I didn't really know this until I researched it. But one of the things Millet wanted to do was dollarize the economy. It's like, we're going to end the central bank. We're going to just get rid of the peso altogether. And we're going to dollarize our economy. What's interesting is that they basically already did that in 1991. They had hyperinflation coming out of the 1980s, uh, triple digits, similar to today. And they said, okay, we have to stop our central bank from printing money. So we're going to put handcuffs on them. We're going to peg our currency one-to-one with the dollar. And it was a pseudo-dollarization because it basically handcuffed them from printing any money, tied it to the dollar, and then they raised a lot of debt in dollar-denominated debt. And you saw more dollarization really explode throughout the economy in the 1990s. And what that did, though, is it didn't stop the, the poor fiscal policies from happening. It stopped mm. inflation. It got the, the inflation way down really fast. And so the IMF cheered it on. They were like, this currency peg's great. We're seeing dollarization. Uh, we're seeing stability in Argentina, finally. Argentina became a darling in the 1990s, but it didn't stop them from getting access to a ton of debt from foreign investors, continuing to spend like crazy. And it just led to a really fragile high high growth economy that when an economic downturn happened, they were completely screwed. And then the IMF partly le- like contributed by leveraging up the economy in the 90s. And they admitted this, that they contributed to like the weakness in the economy. Um, then they just said, hey, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna disperse the funds. And then it just exploded for them in 2001. And so dollarization really isn't this like silver bullet. I mean, they always, they kind of already tried it. And the other thing with dollarization is Argentina doesn't have dollars. Like they literally drained all their dollars. Um, And so it's hard to dollarize an economy when you don't have any dollars left. And so right now what you're seeing is Malay coming out and basically doing the IMF playbook where they're devaluing the currency They just devalued 54% overnight. They are going to privatize state-owned enterprises. They're going to open up their markets to foreign investors. Um, And so all of these things, that's the shock therapy that you hear. Now, the problem is that Argentina did this in 2001, and it led to cuts to Social Security and unemployment, wage cuts, tax hikes, currency devaluations. And there was protests, mass protests, violent protests. There was a worker strike of 7 million workers. And so Malay, even if it's the right thing to do to try to get the economy on on the right path, he's probably going to be deeply unpopular when he does this. Mm, And there's likely going to be a rise in civil unrest, which is typically what happens when countries follow the IMF playbook. There's a rise in civil unrest, Riving poverty levels, unemployment rate, it's going to be painful. And that's kind of what Malay's been trying to, you know, say is, hey, this is going to be really painful. You know, you're going to get poorer in the short term, but trust me, it's going to get better in the long term. It's it's going to be a tricky, he's going to be walking a tightrope here. And so the, to think about him with all of this going on to, to that he's going to like turn to Bitcoin, it's, it's a pipe dream. But but what we can maybe hope for is that he doesn't actively restrict Bitcoin's adoption. Like maybe he'll just kind of like let it go and not 
not stop Argent Argentinians from accessing like a lifeboat during all this. And I think that should be like the hope, but like the idea that he's going to go all El Salvador anytime soon, I think it's just, it's not really in the cards right now. Very mm -hmm. interesting and well said. I mean, it's politics one-on-one. Talk big, do small. And he's yeah, had some off. wonderful rants and taken some swings at some central bank pinatas, but we'll see what happens when the rubber hits the road. Human beings don't like pain. We can verify that after yeah. being paramedics for a long period of time. Um, and you have to think about what teat they've been suckling from. Josh, we breastfed our children. I don't know about year two, but uh, even if the, even if the, my wife's milk. I can tell you did, Dan, you're, you're kind of. <laughs> You need to work on that. You tighten that up. As far as I understand, the wolf, the milk that my wife was producing was incredibly nutritious. No concerns. But <laughs> did even, you try it? <laughs> you tried it, right? No comment. <laughs> no, no comment. Fill in That's the blank yes, there. Folks. Even if the milk's rotten, yes. even if the milk's rotten, you can't just take a one-year-old off the teat and say, "All right, you're gonna do, you're gonna do solids and the whole deal." Not, no. It takes time. It's it's incremental. And this is what is, even if it's not healthy or helpful on a high level, it's what's sustaining a lot of economic realities in Argentina. Him flying to Washington does crack me up. I mean, it, it is like encountering a hard badass at the bar with brass knuckles who you see walk outside, get in a Toyota Camry and drive home to his parents' house. And <laughs> you got to put a roof over your head, dude. And he... <clears throat> This is where it's helpful to remember, even if he does kind of cuck down and bitch out, like there are trade-offs. These realities are incredibly complex and leading a country, particularly one that has is in many regards in disarray, like Argentina, there are not easy answers. You're going to have to make concessions to make sure that people aren't just living in a ruinous, you know, 10-year time frame. I, so... Yeah, but to I, I love how you laid that out, and that's very different than sort of what a lot of people are putting forward on on Twitter. There's a lot behind the scenes that that makes you a little more bearish. I know you're a little more bullish yeah. in the Middle East. Can you talk a little bit about? I know you've said some things recently about potential nation state adoption and mining and stuff in the Middle East. What's your thoughts over there? Yeah, like unlike Argentina they have much better balance sheets and they're not beholden to large international organizations like the IMF. And so I've been really bullish on adoption in the Middle East. I was actually, I was just talking to somebody yesterday from Pakistan and just some anecdotal evidence. I just asked him like, what's Bitcoin like there? And cause inflation's running and they have a lot of issues economically. And he was like, Oh, every young person, I would say like one in four young person owns Bitcoin or, or at least knows about it. And he's like, it's, it's less with older generations, but young people definitely are, are dabbling in Pakistan. And that's just anecdotal. But then you've had like mining adoption in the Bhutan, Oman, and the UAE recently with Marathon. And those are all like state-sponsored state programs or investments. I know the UAE, there's a sovereign wealth fund that invested in that program. Oman, that was a state-sponsored uh, investment as well into Bitcoin mining, which it's different than just like buying right. Bitcoin. They're actually seeing Bitcoin mining as a way to improve their their ener energy industry through harnessing wasted energy or 
stabilizing the grid or incentivizing other renewable energy projects. And that's all written in, in some of those press releases. You know, they basically have access hydro and Bhutan. Um, same thing in, in Oman. They just, they want to stabilize the grid. Same thing in the UAE. And that's extremely bullish to me because that's, I would love to see more decentralization in hash rate in general. Mm. And mm. when you have, I think like Crusoe Energy was just on 60 Minutes kind of yeah. talking about things. You're starting cool to be segment. more, yeah, more awareness around the benefits that Bitcoin mining can bring to a country's energy industry. And in the Middle East, obviously, energy is huge. And I'm just extremely bullish about some of the developments there. Because they, they, unlike Argentina, you know, there's a lot of wealth there. Right, <laughs> so for sure. It's, Another right, so it, it just kind of makes more sense, maybe that that's where Bitcoin adoption um, could really flourish in the next couple of years. And we are so U.S. centric when it comes to even the price chart of Bitcoin. We're always comparing it to U.S. dollars, but when you when you look at these charts, especially in some of these smaller countries that are having more issues with their money, like Turkey is a good example. You look at this Bitcoin chart in their currencies, and it's flooring. I mean, this thing is gone straight up in their local currency and it gives them a lot more incentive to be investing in something that has just gone up exponentially as compared to their i forget the the turkish currency at the off the top of lira? my head right now but when your lira. currency is hyperinflating what was it the lira the lira lira that's it yeah when your currency is inflating to you know triple digits potentially over a course of a year um bitcoin gets really appetizing when you look at that chart yeah it's not as volatile uh, in those countries. In the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the wrong direction. Yeah. You see that in the, like, chain analysis puts out a geography report of, of quote-unquote crypto adoption every year. And I always like it because it's just, like, probably the most in-depth report that kind of answers this question of where the most, you know, Bitcoin adoption is happening. Uh, they take into account, like, stable coins and DeFi, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But when you when you look at like the top twenty five countries, a lot of them are countries that are suffering from hyperinflation or um, economic instability, and so Argentina's on there. We talked right. about that. Turkey's way up sense. there. Lebanon, Pakistan, uh, Pakistan. So like all of these uh, countries that are going through these issues are seeing rising uh, adoption of, of cryptocurrencies. So. Um, that's encouraging to me. That's encouraging because I've always been interested in Bitcoin from like a human rights perspective and its ability to help those people. And so they need it. They do. Yeah. They let's, um, let's get to some bullish talk here as we round this thing out. Um, two things we touched on the ETF a little bit. Want to talk about that just for a few minutes because it's of, you know, huge interest to everybody in the space. Um, what are you guys hearing on your end over at Swan and behind the scenes there, you guys still thinking like, I think the consensus is that this is very likely to happen if it happens in early January. Uh, Carlos Sari has been harping on early January and on the other side of it, if this was delayed or potentially they just find some reason to say that we're not doing this, how bad could that impact Mm. the Bitcoin price? Because I, I think most people assume the recent price action is at least in part uh, people preparing for the green god candle when uh, the ETF gets approved. Yeah, I do think some of the price movement has been around speculation on the ETF, uh, potential ETF approval. January 10th has been that date because that's when ARK 
um, that's when the deadline ends for ARC and ARC is like the out in front of all the other ETFs. So now there's like a comment period for January 5th to January 10th. And a lot of people are expecting it to happen. Uh, you know, at Swan and myself, we're just working with the publicly available information that everyone else has. And so I, I have kind of circled that date and I do think it makes sense. I've, I've never agreed with the SECs rejecting them. Like after they approve the futures, like I've always had criticisms of grayscale in GPTC, but at the same time, I definitely agreed with their argument that it made absolutely no sense that they SEC approved the futures Bitcoin ETFs and then denied the spot. And so that's what the courts ruled as well, that it was arbitrary and capricious, didn't make sense. And so now they're going back to the drawing board and whether they come up with another reason or not is another story. Now, I think some of these like um, regulatory actions against Binance and others, that's actually kind of opening the door for a potential approval because market manipulation was the one thing that kept them from... Mm. That was their main argument, right? And so they talk about manipulation in the spot markets and we know they don't specifically name Binance in the DOJ for manipulating, but if you just kind of connect dots, yeah. Binance was over around 50% of the spot trading volume for a long time. They're saying that there's a lot of spot market manipulation. Now Binance is going under monitorship and likely that will start to fall dramatically um, and so maybe that is enough for the SEC to be like, okay, things are getting under control and more trading volumes are going to flow to more regulated trading venues. And now's the time for us to do that. So I do think it happens. I think if it gets delayed, it seems like the market is really expecting it to get approved in like very early Q1. And so if it gets denied or delayed, um, I think it would be kind of a shock and you could see a short-term price reaction to that. But I think long term, I think an ETF is inevitable. I mean, it just makes so much sense. And now you have big players like BlackRock and Invesco, Fidelity, right. Franklin Templeton. Like these are big TradFi names that are they're putting out their applications for it. So I'm pretty constructive on it. I, I do think it could happen in early January. Uh, if it doesn't, we might see a little bit of a price crash and reaction. But I think that's only temporary. And I think... It's only a matter of time before one gets approved. Yeah, if that did happen, that price crash would be a real appetizing time to to move a little bit of money into Bitcoin, in my view, uh, for anyone listening who wants to get a bigger bite at this thing. If that happens, buy some Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I for me personally, guys, I feel like we're entering this new framework for Bitcoin where it seems very clear to me where price is headed and that's upward, it seems less clear to me how robust censorship resistance is going to stay in this new environment. I think Bitcoin's proven an enormous amount, but American HODL said this last week, it's, it's still proving itself. We're not there. We haven't arrived. We haven't been in an environment with really, really significant institutional adoption. Maybe let's just for a minute here talk about the pros and cons of a potential ETF environment. What are your thoughts on each side of that spectrum, Sam? Well, I think the pros are obvious. I mean, you could see significant demand come online for the underlying. Like really significant. We, like Josh and I like were talking really at the firehouse. We were like, it seems too easy, but holy shit, in this... The numbers start to get they wild. They do, man. Like when you, 
Because it's not just one ETF either. It would be like 10. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so they all need to like seed those funds and they'll all have different, you know, um, levels of demand, but it's all just, there's just not that much Bitcoin straight up. So this is what we were talking about. So we're sitting there kind of like with a whiteboard trying to game out like, okay, let's say this all gets approved in January and there is, I'm just going to pick a number off the top of my head. There's say $10 billion that suddenly has to buy Bitcoin because you've got 10 different ETFs that are all having people put money into these shit. You know, they're, they're getting shares. A couple of questions on this for you. So logistically, do they generally, they generally buy in bulk, like say at the end of the day. So they collect, I don't know, a billion dollars and they need to go buy Bitcoin. Do you think that there's enough OTC over the counter uh, money or Bitcoin available for them to not massively move the market or are they going to have to go market buy? What do you, what are your thoughts just generally on that? How are they going to get this Bitcoin? Well, I, yeah. I think that, that the price would How? react pretty substantially. <laughs> I mean, there's only, that it would be very interesting to like, that's why people speculate that they're going to see they're seeding their fund and because they'll just run up the price on themselves as they try to buy it. And they don't want to do exactly. that. Exactly. So how do but they I, do that? Like, that's another logistic question. Like, say you have a billion dollars you need to enter with, and you've promised people that they're getting X amount of Bitcoin for the dollars you've already taken from them. Then you go market buy, and the price runs off on you. How do they? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, just wondering how logistically do these guys do this? Yeah. I, that's why one of the things that I've thought through like a potential scenario is is like a BlackRock acquiring GBTC, mm. the, the, the trust, yeah. because it makes sense from like three different parties. Like it's it's BlackRock gets to acquire like 635,000 Bitcoin in one fell swoop. So they, they'll get to see their fund without running the price up on themselves. GDCG uh, needs money right now. They're in all these legal problems. They already sold off Coindesk. And they're kind of selling off their assets. They don't want to sell off their cash cow, but there will be willing buyers for it if they need the liquidity. And then maybe the SEC, maybe maybe they'll be more likely to convert uh, GBTC into an ETF if somebody like BlackRock's the sponsor and not Grayscale because right. they don't really have a good relationship with Grayscale at this point. Right. So maybe the SEC would prefer that as well if the trust was under new management by a quote-unquote respected institution like BlackRock. Uh, it kind of makes sense from all three parties. And so maybe something like that happens, but that would obviously only benefit BlackRock. (laughs) So these other ones would still need to buy and and find the Bitcoin available on the exchanges. I I do think it's, they'll uh, approve a a bunch at once. I don't think they'll like pick a winner like a BlackRock. And it's going to be interesting to see the competition between ETFs. Like competition is good. I mean, they'll, they'll compete on like fees, and then one interesting thing is like gold ETFs, like some of them offer different features, like being able to take um, self, self-custody self of gold. Yeah. Like they basically allow people to take it. Some don't, some do. Maybe some Bitcoin ETFs one day will allow people to redeem uh, Bitcoin, um, whereas others won't. And there would be a reason, maybe, maybe they charge a little bit of a higher fee, but that ETF allows people to redeem the self-custody. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out, but that's kind of what happened in the gold. ETF uh, market. But anyway, I don't know if that answers your questions. Yeah. But that's a little bit tangent. I don't think anyone can really answer it. I'm just kind of like game planning, like how in the world, if I had a billion dollars, would I try to buy Bitcoin without moving the market? And it, I just can't find a way. 
short of having yeah, an OTC well, desk this, that has a shit, fucking shit ton of Bitcoin. This is what we were doing before Keith McKay came over. We, we like Josh and I sometimes like to overcomplicate things and overanalyze. We're like, so wait, how are they? How are they going to do it? How are they going to enter? And then we're both like, yeah, I think I think the price just goes like way the fuck up. It's just like it's just too good to be true yeah. kind of thing, you know. Like we're like, there's got to be some something we're missing. We're obviously there's assuming some way they do We're this. assuming demand is coming in. I mean, you can have all the ETFs you want with no demand and nothing happens. So, but th- we're not going to spend time now. But we've spent a hundred fucking thirty seven episodes talking about why there's significant there will be ongoing well, and significant demand for also Bitcoin. if there's 10 entities that are creating going through all the paperwork the lawyers all of the bullshit in order to create an etf they're not going to do that if they don't think there's demand yeah like they simply wouldn't be bothering like fidelity isn't going to bother with this if there isn't going to be a monetary prize at the end of the rainbow you know like they're not doing yeah, it out of the goodness of their hearts it's just like an etf too i just MicroStrategy is so interesting because it's just one relatively small software company. I who, love that guy. Who has like 174,000 Bitcoin. This motherfucker worth, is, yeah. Worth a couple billion. But that's like, that's just one company. Like, what if another company wants to? And then and then you have, um, you know, the FASB rules helps that scenario. But then like, even like a billionaire, like how many of these billionaires? I just saw like a article uh, in Bloomberg from a guy who works at AQR, who used to work at AQR Capital, who's like the head of market research there for a long time. AQR Capital is a investment firm that manages like $163 billion. They're led by Cliff Asnes, who's historically like a, a Bitcoin critic, but he's like a brilliant billionaire. And it's just like when you, when you have that article that's recommending a small Bitcoin allocation, basically that article is basically get off zero, what Bitcoiners have been saying forever. But you have somebody like him saying it. If you just have like a billionaire who's like, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to put like 5% of my net worth and that, that guy's worth like $15 billion or something. I mean, you just start to like scratch your head because that's just one person. And then you have like one company like macro uh, MicroStrategy and if that just snowballs and then you have the ETFs and then you have like sovereign wealth funds and, and there's yeah. just, there's You've just got not the that e- much Bitcoin. The wild card <laughs> that is Elon Musk. Like Elon Musk only has Elon to Musk. send out one tweet about Bitcoin and the price is going to go up $10,000 in a second. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I mean, his, his net worth is a lot of equity, but like if he decides like I want to own 10% Bitcoin, like that's just, it would, it's, it's just crazy to think about how scarce it is and that, I mean, I, I just, I, my mind just goes like, just kind of blows up thinking about that and how it's like not already, maybe it is already happening, but um, there's just a lot yeah. of money that can flow into this tiny, we, tiny asset. We were talking about like maybe the dark side of this too, which is, <clears throat> it's all about incentives, right? And I would say 90 to 99% of people that are involved are really at the bottom, just wanting to get financially wealthy, right? Yeah, that's where this kind of gets dangerous because right. as these people and these ETFs and the, I mean, billionaires are not people that are going to do anything outside of the law. Well, I shouldn't say that they <laughs> clearly will, but they're not going to do it overtly. <laughs> that, that wasn't the way I meant for that to come out necessarily. Those people are, yeah, they're squeaky clean. They don't do anything wrong. They've never hung out with Epstein ever, but uh, until it's regulated is what I'm saying. So it's like, well, regulated, all of this all of this Elizabeth Warren bill is kind of sorted out. They don't wouldn't have a problem not custodying their own Bitcoin, very likely. So the dark side of this is the incentives 
for Bitcoin to be worth a million dollars or $5 million a coin lead to potentially Bitcoin being completely captured and just, you know, the new alternative to gold that, you know, all the, all the cyberpunk people, the people that generally don't give a shit about the money are more worried about the, you know, flourishing of the human race. To, you know, th- those are so rare compared to the people that just want to fucking get rich. Um, that's where I think this thing could have, it could have some problems with being the Bitcoin we see today, five to 10 years from now. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think looking at Bitcoin as digital gold is really easy for people to wrap their heads around. But as we both know, like it's, it's much, much more than that. And, um, over time, I think more people are going to become aware of what it enables um, as it matures as a technology, as more innovations get built on it. And so that I just think that preserving the ability to self-custody is so important uh, to Absolutely. protect over time. Um, but you're but right. there's so I few mean, people that appreciate yeah. that, I guess, is the... Well, yeah. And, and what's what's interesting is that with each wave, which each cycle, the the makeup of the Bitcoin investor base kind of changes. Like you even see that like the OG Bitcoiners are like, these people aren't the same as what we used to be. They're, they're soft. Like they're kind of hardened anarcho, like capitalists, like libertarians. Um, and they just have a kind of a different mindset than say like the, the 2020, 21 class. It's just, a different, you know what I totally, mean? It's like a yeah. different personality of investors. And I expect that to, to continue. And you're right. Like as this gets bigger and this is an ETF and, you know, everyone's attracted to number go up. And if a lot more people come in, there will be this like group of Bitcoiners who have these ideals um, from the earlier days of like, you know, freedom and all these things that maybe the new investors won't care as much about. Cause they're just like, I'm just here to buy an ETF and get rich and get more fiat. And so it's definitely, it's something that the values of Bitcoin is kind of unique to each individual, I would say, but there is like an underlying core values that we all kind of agree on. Um, And whether that kind of gets lost in the process of adoption or not, it's something that I think about. It's still still TBD. It really is. And it's a reason to stay vigilant. I think another just comment on this idea is that if you're a tech-minded, freedom-minded individual, it may sound awesome for you to have your entire net worth on a multi-sig in Sparrow. If you're the billionaire you just mentioned, they are not going to feel that way. I can virtually fucking promise you that they're not going to feel that way. And so as big money comes in, it is it is important for us to remember that we need ethical Bitcoin banking solutions, ethical and conservative Bitcoin banking solutions, and good institutional-grade custody solutions because as awesome as they are and as much as we appreciate them huge institutional trad fine money is not going to have this all on a cold card in their fucking basement and um that's a great solution and we use that and there's ways to do that i'm just saying the reality as this next wave comes in is that we need to build out and there already are a lot of these things built out Swan's doing a lot of this stuff, building out solutions for these institutions that are coming in. And main the word can, I think, is key to self-custody. My hope and prayer as this thing moves forward is that the ability to self-custody stays there and that money can flow that direction if it needs. If that gets cut off or totally washed out of the ethos, 
that's concerning for sure. Yeah. I think that's why Bitcoiners are concerned with the warrant bill. For sure. Totes. Seems but like if you, if you gave people the choice, like Bitcoin will be worth a million dollars in two years, but you're going to lose, it's going to lose a lot of its capability or B, you're going to have to wait 20 years for Bitcoin to be worth a million dollars. If people gave their honest answer, I think it might scare a lot of uh, cyberpunks. Yeah. yeah. And Bitcoin's going to outgrow your individual convictions and have a lot of normies coming in as this thing uh, pushes out into the, the open ocean. And not all of them are going to share your same worldview. Yeah, I know. It's why like, bull markets are, can be like extremely annoying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, they, they, they really can. They, they get all these people that come in and, and it's a very easy for some Bitcoiners to be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, I've been here for five years. Who the hell are you? Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, there's uh, a, a ton of noise in bull markets. A ton sure of noise. There always is. What is the, what's the rumination behind the scenes at Swan? You don't have to put anybody on call for this, but what are you guys thinking? Crazy upside for this, uh, Coming bull, this bull market. What is what are the numbers getting tossed around behind and the this, scenes? And this is the official sw- official Swan stance coming from Sam. Yeah, Kelly. We're we want, we want you down for, for a, a down for I a can't, specific can't dollar amount. That's the thing about Swan. It's just full of Bitcoiners with their own with their own uh, unique perspectives. They allow a lot of like individual thought, which is why I like working there. And uh, everyone has different uh, predictions, but I think everybody just in general thinks that this next bull market could be pretty explosive um for a combination of all the things we just talked about as well as just the macro picture and and what's going to happen when the central bank comes back in and and tries to stimulate things it's just going to be really bonkers in my opinion and then you think about how there's not that much bitcoin on the exchanges and you could have this like multiplier effect this god candle this green candle whatever yeah yeah, I mean, I think I, I, that's why Swan's building. Um, we're just trying to build as fast as we can in the bear market to have everything in place to kind of benefit as a company from that coming wave that we think is coming. We think which each Bitcoin cycle, it just becomes bigger. Um, the rewards are bigger. The implications are bigger. Um, the attacks are bigger. It's just becoming more and more important and more. it's going more and more on the world stage um, as a growing asset Uh I mean, it's just crazy what we've seen even the last couple of years in terms of how it's talked about on mainstream media. Um, it's basically every day you have some kind of Bitcoin conversation happening on CNBC yeah. and it getting discussed in on the Congress floor. I mean, it's just <clears throat> that wasn't happening three or four years ago. And so we just expect all of that to continue and then more and more people to wake up to the value proposition of Bitcoin as education gets better. That's why Swan's such a education focused company. Um, because we just think it's, once people learn about it, it's, it's like, oh, wow, I need to own some of this. It's just a yeah. matter of getting the truth out there, getting the education out there, uh, because the to- technology speaks for itself. It sure does. And, um, yeah, so we're bullish. We're really bullish. You know, I personally think it can get well into the six figures. And, you know, I, I think some of these crazy figures, this cycle are, are possible, you know, the high six figures, um, I think there'll eventually be another crash as people leverage up again. Like, I don't think we've, we're, we're not going to see like large drawdowns of 50 plus percent, 60 
maybe 70 still, I don't even know, but it's just going to happen at a much higher level as adoption continues. Yeah. We have a cohort of just a couple of boomers left at our department and they are great bellwethers for when the top of Bitcoin happens because they don't ever (laughs) talk about it. And when they do, I remember very clearly in 2017, this, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure this happened in 2021, so I can't say this is a, an optimal indicator, but in 2017 in mid December, this guy came up to me who we had been, everybody at the firehouse is talking about Bitcoin for six months at that point. He ignored the conversation. It was on the front of wall street journal that morning. And he comes in talking about it. And I was like, and I remember saying this to some guys I was with, I was like, this is it. Like, this has got to be the top. This this guy's talking about it. And it was fucking within like three or four days of the top. Yeah. Should have known. I didn't, I didn't act on it. Like I should have, but you know, this time I will, we'll let everybody know when this guy starts talking. Shout out, shout out to Jeff. We know you're not listening, but call the next top for us. Will (laughs) you? Yeah. He'll call it. Yeah, he'll, he'll call, call it. it. When Jeff comes around, that's yeah. when he knows. The, the Jeff metric. Keep, what did he say to me? He said, hey, have you heard of crypto coin? As if I had never heard of Bitcoin. That's how he referred to Bitcoin. <laughs> I was like, yes, Jeff, I've heard of crypto coin. It's actually called Bitcoin. Uh, and yes, thanks for calling the top. Dan, sell your shit now. Get out. Abandon get ship. Out. Yeah. <laughs> After we sell everything, we'll make sure to get on Twitter and let you guys know a few days later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sam, to close us out, two things. Talk to us about the launch of Swan Institutional real quick, if you can, and then hand off to you, your work, where people can find you. Yeah, Swan Institutional, I mean, it's kind of what we were just talking about, kind of launching this arm that will serve uh, institutions and institutional investors, um, you know, entities, financial advisors, uh, things like that, uh, working with businesses and other large institutions to help them get onboarded to Bitcoin. and so. That's just a new arm that we're launching and we're excited about it. We think there's going to be a ton of opportunity there with some of this regulatory clarity around Bitcoin, not crypto, um, as well as some of these things like the FASB rules uh, getting approved to start. I think I think Sailor said something today, like December 15, 2024 is when those go into effect in terms of fair accounting rules for businesses. And so we think there's going to be a lot of interest. And so, like I said, we're just trying to build out the, the products now so that um, when they come in, we'll be able to service them and meet their Bitcoin needs. And so um, that's already in effect. And so if you're interested in learning more, you can reach out to the team, Swan Institutional. Um, and then in terms of my work, uh, you can go on, on X. So I'm, I'm always on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, uh, tweeting out stuff at Sam Kala, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. Um, I host Cafe Bitcoin uh, every, every Friday uh, with John Har. Uh, I also host Swan Signal Live. You can check that out on YouTube or any kind of podcast. And then I do a lot of uh, research work and writing that you can find on the Swan blog. So just go to swan.com and go to the Learn tab. And you can find like my market updates that I write every two weeks, which is more macro and industry focused. And then I also do a, a research report with Thomas Strollite where we go into deep topics like similar to the Argentina piece that we talked about. So you can find it there. And uh, just this was so much fun, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we'll have to hit you guys up when we're we're back in your town to get to eat some steaks. Or sounds great. I, I'm still putting the pressure on Natalie. Um, maybe maybe we do lunch. She does dinner, but 
I don't know. We'll sort it out <laughs> when you're around. We'll see. See how things go. Yeah. We're not presumptuous at all <laughs> at the firehouse. You know, we, we generally keep that pretty low to a minimum. <laughs> uh, the most presumptuous place on planet Earth. Sam, we appreciate the hell out of you, man. This was a blast. We will certainly do it again if you're willing to volunteer the time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Keep doing a great job, guys. So, this is a great show and big fan. Thanks, man. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. If you aren't using Fountain, you should check it out. You can get paid sats to listen to your favorite Bitcoin podcasts. Lastly, if you haven't bought tickets to Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville and you are planning to, use code BCB for 10% off tickets.